0: Good morning. Uh, My name is Ryan. It's my pleasure to open God's word with you this morning. We're looking at uh, Mark chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 11. Uh, It is Palm Sunday. You've probably figured that out already. And so this is normally when we would look at a passage like we find in Mark 11, a few chapters back, that give us the account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. We commemorated that moment a, a few minutes ago when our children entered This room with palm branches, we were being reminded of what it was like to be there that day as the crowd sang Hosanna as Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem, uh, and uh, and received this incredible welcome. Uh, But this morning, we're looking at a different passage, partly because we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, so we've covered Mark 11 and the triumphal entry already. Not that we couldn't look at it again, but... In Mark chapter 14, we have another welcome that occurred during the final days of Jesus. Uh, This one didn't take place uh, in front of large crowds with palm branches. This one took place at a dinner party uh, when one woman entered uninvited and gave a very unbudgeted and uh, unexpected gift to Jesus. Jesus. And what's interesting is that um, when we look at this passage, what we find is that this is the welcome that Jesus wants us to remember. This is the one that he wants us, even today, to remember and then to imitate in our own lives. That this morning as we welcome Jesus, we would welcome Jesus like this. Mark chapter 14 beginning with verse one. Let's give our attention to God's holy word. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard very costly and she broke the flask and poured it over his head there were some who said to themselves indignantly why was this ointment wasted like that for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor and they scolded her but jesus said leave her alone why do you trouble her for she has done a beautiful thing to me For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would open our hearts and our minds to this portion of your word, that we might see Jesus as even more believable and even more beautiful than we realized We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, Jesus is doing something that in some ways is really ordinary, maybe something you did this week. He attended a dinner party, a dinner party hosted by a friend. We're told it happens in the village of Bethany, which is just outside Jerusalem, and it's hosted, we're told, by Mark, by Simon the leper. Not exactly uh, the most endearing nickname, Simon the leper. The leper, And yet, uh, Simon was one of the most popular names at the time, especially among Jewish men. And so Mark is doing us a big favor. He's telling us which Simon we're talking about. Okay, so it's not Simon Peter, a.k.a. The Rock. We know his nickname. Not that one. Not Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus. We'll meet him in the next chapter. He was the one who carried Jesus' cross for a time. This is Simon the leper. Probably Simon, the former leper, because at this time, if you had leprosy, you couldn't have people in your house because you were cut off from the community. And so what's likely going on here is Simon, the former leper, is throwing a party in Jesus's honor because Jesus is the one who healed him and gave him his life back. Now, in another gospel, the gospel of John, we have the same story in a slightly different form, but we're told that other people were on that guest list, including a man named Lazarus. And Lazarus, we know, had something to thank Jesus for as well. Not that long before, like within the year, Lazarus had been the recipient of perhaps Jesus' greatest act of power when he was raised from the grave. And so you have Simon, the former leper, Lazarus, the former dead man, all seated at the table with Jesus, celebrating this man who has changed their life forever. But even in the midst of that crowd, what happened next was completely unexpected. A woman enters the room. John tells us that woman was Mary, incidentally, Lazarus' sister. And she breaks an expensive jar of perfume and pours it all over Jesus' head, and as soon as that happens, two things occur. First of all, the room smells amazing, and secondly, the room is divided. So there, there are some people on one side who are disgusted with what just happened. They're furious. They think Mary just made the biggest mistake of her life. She is wasting something that could have gone to a good cause it's wasted in that moment and they tell her so and there are some that agree with her, that group and then there is at least one other person in the room who says no what, what Mary did was not wasteful it was beautiful and that person was Jesus so here's the question who was right? I know, you're like, all right, it's, uh, it's Sunday, it's Palm Sunday. Today's not the day to disagree with Jesus, all right? So I understand you're like, yep, beautiful. We understand. Let's just get out of here. Um, but just imagine, just imagine for a second, it, Jesus didn't say any of this. Let's just say all we had was the action. Let's just say you were sitting at the table at the time in the room and, and this happened and you witnessed all of it happening. What would your real conclusion be? That, that this was wasteful or, or that this was beautiful? Let's take the first option up first and let's just consider it for a moment. It's not quite as cruel and crazy as you might think because Mark tells us in verse three, this was a very costly bottle of perfume. As one who doesn't you know, exactly work in the aroma industry, I don't know what an expensive bottle of perfume is. I'm thinking $10, $15 sounds about, <laughs> sounds about right. I don't know. You can correct me later. But this was very costly. And that means this is a very big understatement. Because Mark tells us what kind of perfume this was. This was ointment of pure nard. And as all of you know, nard was an oil extract from a plant that only grew in the Himalayas. And we're not in the Himalayas at this point, are we? We're in Palestine. And so this was very expensive to get. In fact, someone at the party, probably the accountant in the room, immediately does the math and tells us how much this bottle of perfume, this bottle of nard was worth. Verse 5. It probably would have gone for more than 300 denarii, which is one year's wage, one year's salary, right there in one bottle of perfume. So I'll let you do your own math on that. But let's just say $60,000, dollars $80,000 worth of perfume gone in a second. And not only is this expensive, this is also excessive. Because she doesn't just take the cork out and you know, put a little drop on there. People would say, okay, maybe we could allow that sort of thing. She breaks the flask, we're told in verse three, and she pours it over his head so that it's running down his head, down his body, dripping off of his toes. You see, it was customary in this culture, if you were an honored guest, to be anointed with oil when you came to the dinner table. It was sort of like when a guest speaker comes to speak at an event, you give the guest speaker a gift, or a foreign dignitary comes to visit a country, you give them a gift, you know, smile and a handshake and all that. Uh, And so you anointed a guest, but you didn't do this. You didn't give the person a bath in the most expensive perfume around. And so you can begin to see the wheels turning immediately. The well-meaning, pious, religious, socially sensitive people in the room are adding it up. And they're saying, you've got to be kidding me. In fact, the word that's used here, indignant, means indignant. Okay? They're not just annoyed. It's not like when you threw your retainer away in eighth grade by mistake on the lunch tray your dad was mad all right. and then you did it again in ninth grade and he was really mad then too We're, in fact the word here if you look at it again in verse 5 is scold uh, the Greek word that's based on that's translated into English is the word flaring nostrils Now, maybe that does remind you of your dad when you lost your retainer I don't know uh, we could talk about that later, but you get the idea. This is, this is the image of a bull that's ready to charge. These people are furious. Why are they so angry? Well, think about how much good this money could have done. A year's salary. I mean, that's, that's feeding a lot of hungry kids. That's a lot of medicine to, to heal diseases. I mean, that's potential lives could be saved with that kind of money. And instead, what does she do? She wastes it all on Jesus. I wonder if anyone could look at your life or my life and come to the conclusion that we're wasteful for Jesus. You know, like if someone took an honest appraisal of how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you spend your talents, what you give yourself over to. If people would assess all of that and come to the conclusion, how wasteful. Or would they come to the conclusion that, well, she seems like a reasonable sort of Christian. You know, she's got boundaries, uh, he's, he's moderate in these things, in a good way. But not over the top, right? Like, not too passionate. Not to the point that it's really going to change life decisions and, you know, the sorts of things that people really care about. Uh, I was thinking about this uh, this week. I was thinking back to a conversation I had with someone around the time that I was thinking about going to seminary. It's a number of years ago. I was 25, 26 years old. I was starting to think about seminary. And I ran into a high school friend of mine. High school friend of mine who was uh, very smart, very educated, very successful, had little time for Christianity. And so he said, well, what are you thinking about doing? And I said, well, I'm thinking about, and I chose my words carefully. I do want you to know. I'm thinking about pursuing a graduate degree in theological studies. See, that sounds respectable. Going to seminary to be, be a pastor, yeah, I wasn't quite ready to throw that out there yet. So pursuing a graduate degree in theological studies, I thought that sounded good. And then I didn't even wait for him to say anything. I added this. And the reason I want to is because, you know, I'm really intellectually stimulated by theologians and philosophers like, you know, the 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. I thought that sounded really refined. Uh, now, to my surprise, he'd read some Kierkegaard, actually. <laughs> which was a problem, because I hadn't. <laughs> but you can see where that conversation was going. Why I would say something crazy like that, why not just say, I'm going to go to seminary and learn, and I want to be a pastor. Why not say that? Because that sounds a whole lot like I'm wasting my life on Jesus. Money, time, talent. And that's not just the calculus we do when we're deciding whether to go to seminary or not. That's that's the math we do every day. If you're a Christian, you are making those kind of decisions about how to present yourself to others every single day. Because there are people in your life who are gonna think you're wasting your life simply by believing in Jesus. Like, why would you waste all that intellectual power believing something crazy like that? That Jesus died for your sins and rose again? Where are you from? Or that you would spend a quarter of your weekend with me here? Better things you could be doing with your time. Or or that people would uh, think that you actually give money someone sharing the gospel in a country you've never been to? That just sounds nuts. What a waste. Or that you would forgive somebody who has done you harm intentionally rather than talking behind their back. Why would you do something? Why would you waste your time with those people? Or that you would volunteer your time, that you would give up your weekend to, to care for those who are poor, who will never reciprocate Any of it back to you? Like, what? Why are you wasting your life on Jesus? And my question is could anyone make that accusation of us? Of you? Because what Jesus says in this passage is that as wasteful as that sort of radical, Life toward Jesus might seem to many people we know and other people we don't know but are happy to give us their opinions anyway. Jesus says it's not wasteful at all, it's beautiful. Notice the way he turns it around. Um, maybe they're hoping, the folks in the room who are all about caring for the poor, maybe they're hoping Jesus is gonna jump on the bandwagon and scold her as well and say, yeah, you know, this could have gone to something you know, a little more Practical. I appreciate the gesture, but come on. But instead, Jesus jumps right in and defends her in verse six. Leave her alone. Some of you this morning, these are the words of Christ you need to hear. You need to hear Jesus stepping in and defending you. Vouching for you being protective of you. Leave her alone. Why? Because she has done something beautiful to me. Seems wasteful to you, it's beautiful to me. Why is it beautiful? Jesus gives us a hint. It's a strange hint, but it's a hint in verse seven when he says this. For you will always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. What a weird thing for him to say. And I say that because Jesus is the one who just a couple chapters before was looking at a rich young ruler. And his instruction to the rich young ruler was, so here's, here's the one thing you lack. You need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Uh, This is the Jesus who says, uh, What you do for the least of these, you do for me. This is the Jesus of, of the Old Testament who was sweeping all of that teaching into his own. And the consistent drumbeat of the law is care for the poor, have a heart for the poor give generously to the poor. And so it seems as if Jesus is just like undercutting all of that at once. He's not. But he is saying what Mary did was right. She she took valuable perfume and all over my body rather than selling and giving it to the poor and she was right and you are wrong. Why would he say something? Who, who says something like that? You'll always have the poor. You won't always have me so pay attention to me while I'm here. Who says something like that? Narcissists? Delusional people? And Jesus? Because Jesus... Is saying, I am worth what she gave in worship and so much more. He's making a profound statement of who he is. To receive her worship, what was most prized in her life, to receive it without comment or even without any sort of hedging, he says, yep, bring it on. because he's worth it, because he is valuable, because he is who he says he is. The creator, the God of the universe in her presence. And so he receives as beautiful an act of worship. This is an act of worship. And not only is he saying something about himself in framing it that way, he's saying something about how it is we care for the poor in the first place. He gets our worship straight. Tim Keller puts it like this. Worship the wrong things and nothing else will come out quite right. But worship the living God who has given himself for us in the sacrifice of Jesus and you have a new sense of what matters and will prioritize your life accordingly. Suddenly, you'll find yourself wasting your life on Jesus by giving your life to his agenda rather than your own, including caring for the poor. This is why uh, we prayed a moment ago for Tanzania. This is why part of our mission in Tanzania, yes, it's to it's to equip pastors and churches to preach the gospel, but it's also to build wells for the poor. So they have clean water in their villages. This is why uh, just yesterday we had over 130 people in this building from our church and our different sites who were packing meals for those devastated by the earthquake in Turkey. 25,000 meals that will go out for those who do not have enough. That's why the heart of the Christian is toward those who are in need. It's not just because we're activists or because we're really good people who are super uh, selfless. We're not. It's because our lives have been changed as we've come to God, this God, this Lord in worship. And he changes everything. He changes the way we see the world and we see one another and we see even the purpose of our lives as we pour out our worship to Jesus is to be poured out in service to him. Jesus says, though, that this is not just an act of worship, this is an act of preparation. He says it straightforwardly in verse 8. She has done what she could, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now, in some ways, this wouldn't have been unusual. In this culture, when someone died, you anointed their body before you put it in the grave. Uh, it was just a, a process, it was just a, a custom. But what's different here is that Jesus is still alive and his body is being anointed. For death. This is, I mean, this is understandably beautiful to Jesus. Partly because when you look at this passage, Mark is doing something that he's done a few different times. He's giving us a sandwich. Not to make you hungry, right, you know, right before brunch. But uh, this, is a, this is a typical Mark sandwich where he'll, he'll put a passage at the beginning and at the end. And that brings out the beauty or the meaning of the part in between. So what happens at the beginning of this passage, verses one and two, we're told there is a plot A plan afoot to arrest Jesus in private, in stealth is the word there, so that they might, the chief priests and the scribes might kill him. And then we have the story we've been looking at. And then on the other end of it, the other end of the sandwich, we have the story of Judas, who now leaves to make this plan happen. And in between, in between these two stories of ugly hatred and death, we have this beautiful picture of Mary showing love toward the king who is going to die. It's beautiful. And we should ask ourselves, uh, is it beautiful to Jesus? Is it beautiful to us? Is it beautiful to you? Not just is it true, it is. Uh, Not just is it good, is it beautiful? Do we find our own hearts moved at this gesture of Mary toward Jesus who is going to die? Jesus says, this is so beautiful, verse nine, that wherever the gospel has been proclaimed, in the whole world, she will be remembered for what she did. And it just happened again. You, you were just part of it. We're part of it. We're remembering again what, what she did. Not because she's the hero of the story, but because she anoints the hero of the story. In fact, it's interesting that Mark doesn't even mention her name. We have to go somewhere else to get it. Um, the focus here is that Jesus... Jesus is the beautiful one. That Jesus is preparing to do something beautiful for us. That, that there's there's no such thing as wasting your life or wasting your gifts on Jesus. He is worth everything you have and everything you are. And in this passage, Mary welcomes Jesus to the table. And at this table, Jesus returns the favor. Jesus pours out expensive perfume on Jesus at this table. We're reminded that Jesus has poured out his life for us. That this this expression of extravagant love is even more beautifully presented here, and that extravagant love is given to you, that Jesus would give his body and his blood for you. That's why Jesus can talk about the gospel and his death in the same breath, because it is his death that brings us life. It's his death that frees us from the power and the guilt of our sins and it's his resurrection that gives us hope even in the face of the ugliness of hatred and betrayal and death. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, there were many at the time who said it was a waste, waste of a good life, waste of a young life, And they couldn't have been more wrong. Unjust, yes, but not a waste. His death is a treasure to us. And as we come to this table, we remember what he has done for us so that we might receive him as our beautiful savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this table laying it before us as a way of preaching to all of our senses that the gospel is true. I pray now that as we come to this table together you might stir our hearts that we might see Jesus and we might receive him. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.